0: Hello, you're listening to Second City Sermons, a ministry of Second City Church in Midtown Harrisburg. This fall, we're exploring the Old Testament book of Nehemiah and seeing what often happens when God's people seek to rebuild what is broken. It's a book of trial, triumphs, repair, repentance, and renewal. It's our hope that these sermons will draw you more into the life of following God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We'd love to meet you, and we hope you'll consider coming and joining with us each Sunday morning at 10 a.m. in the heart of Midtown Harrisburg. You can find us online at secondcitychurch.org and on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. We hope you enjoyed this sermon. God bless.
1: Uh, Sermon text this morning is that long passage from the book of Nehemiah, and and I'm going to try to distill it in a way that hopefully is rather simple and that you can understand that long passage. But before I get into it, I want you to think about this experience that I have had and actually some of us even had last night when you're putting up a tent and you've got poles going this way and that and you've got hooks coming here and there and you're thinking to yourself, I look ridiculous. What am I doing? I was not cut out for this. Now, that seems kind of silly, but think, maybe, maybe think of the job that you got, and it was a promotion that you, you received, and you had applied for it, and maybe other people in your business had applied for it too, and you got it. But of course, inside, you're actually like, you know what? I don't have the skill to accomplish this. I'm full of doubts. I, maybe I shouldn't have got it. And then that coworker who applied for it, who doesn't really like you, comes into your office and says, you shouldn't be sitting right here. There's no reason you should be doing this work. Cutting words that might actually cause division and dissension even inside your own head as you're already struggling, what should I be doing here? Maybe I don't have what it takes. Putting up a tent can look silly and coworkers' words can bite. Um, but sometimes in the world, there have actually been whole groups of people who have wanted whole other groups of people not to do something. And that's part of what we see actually in this this chapter. But I want you just to think back with me of the Jim Crow laws that really were enacted as soon as the 13th Amendment was passed, right after the Civil War, all the way up until the late 1960s. Largely, it was happening in the southern states, but actually not completely exclusively in the southern states. Um, Local and state laws, they enforced racial segregation. And... And it really wasn't just things like, you can't ride in the front of this bus. But it was actually more things like this. You can't sit anywhere in this theater unless you're sitting at the nosebleeds all the way up at the top of the theater. It was you can't vote. It was you can't have certain jobs. It was actually, this is kind of interesting. Not just can you not have certain jobs, but if you have those jobs, your pay has to be lower Than the white person who's getting doing the exact same job that was actually state law in some places Um, there were towns sorry this thing fell off we were going to use this for the podcast but we'll see how this goes there were towns and you might you might know this that that actually had signs outside of the town as you drove up into the town saying no black people allowed An entire town that says, we don't want you here. Um, Of course, you probably know about the voting rights movements of the 1960s and the marches in places like Birmingham and Selma. um, Probably Washington, D.C. You're familiar with the marches there. And there were leaders, men like Martin Luther King Jr., who stood up against this. And you know this, right? You know that that he kind of led a lot of this movement to stand up against it. But I wonder if you know what it cost him to do that. I actually read this week... He was imprisoned 29 times. I mean, every Martin Luther King Jr. weekend, I like to read the letter from Birmingham jail, which I commend to you. It's a a masterpiece. But he was imprisoned 29 times for seeking to stand up for what was going on, for the voter rights movement. Um, One of the times he was arrested for obstructing a sidewalk and parading without a permit. That's what he was arrested for. Another time, he was sentenced to four months in prison um, for a sit in when he refused to leave a restaurant when he wasn't going to be served. Four months for not leaving a restaurant when he wasn't going to get served. Now, actually, JFK came to his defense even though he wasn't yet uh, the president, and he did not have to serve all those four months. Um, He was arrested once for simply organizing a prayer vigil. That's all they were doing, they were praying. Um, now here's what I'm trying to say in, in this illustration is that sometimes I think when we look at the book of Nehemiah, we think, remember I said this last, last week that it was written around 440 BC. Are you talking about 2,450 years ago? I'm mean, more than that. 2,460 years ago. And you, is it's a temptation to think this book is for a far off place and a far off people? What in the world does it have to do with me? But one of the things I've, I've tried to suggest to you as we've sort of looked throughout the different parts of Scripture is that even if it's for a far-off place and a far-off people, it's always relevant to the people of God. Think about it. If you long for injustice to be brought to an end, you will have opposition. Um, if you long for your neighbors to know Jesus, is true, you'll be made fun of at times. You'll be mocked. That's a true thing. Okay, and now chapter 4 in the book of Nehemiah, I hope what you were able to hear is there's all kinds of opposition happening. And in some ways, I think you can break down the opposition um, to being opposition with word and opposition with actions, okay? Opposition with words and opposition with actions. And I want us to just kind of look at these two, but I want you to see how actually with the people of God here that are doing this work of God in Jerusalem, their resolve is secure. That despite the fact they have all this opposition in words and opposition in action, they're in some ways more and more resolved that the Lord is going to care for us and he's going to bring us through. So first, opposition with words. Um, Let me read this again for you because I sort of want you to hear uh, the mocking and the jeering that's happening. Uh, It says this in verse one through three. It says, now when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and he said, yes, what are they building? If a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Okay, I want us to just look at these little phrases quickly, okay? These little phrases that Sanballat and Tobias say. The first one is this. What are these feeble Jews doing? Now, the fact of the matter is that the Jews actually were very feeble, right? I mean, what we're dealing with here is post-Assyrian exile of the 10 northern tribes, post-Babylonian exile of the two southern tribes. You'll remember that Nehemiah began, you know, way, way, way over. He was living... Uh, in the citadel of Persia, which was on the northern you know, part of the uh, Gulf of Persia. And, I mean, the, the Jews were completely spread out. And if you think back of their history, the Jews had this glorious, uh, glorious history. I mean, David had, you know, massively uh, grown the sort of the Jewish territory, united the tribes under Solomon. I mean, he had all these riches coming from other countries because they were actually coming and saying, you are a great, great king. But that, at this time, I want you to think about it. This is about 440 B.C. David is about 1,000 B.C. Solomon's about 950. That's a long time ago. Their glory days were long, long past. And so it's actually not that crazy to go, what are the, are, who are these people? What are they trying to do? How can they possibly accomplish anything? What are these feeble Jews doing? I think, I, let me just start. I think this is very easy for us actually to resonate with in some ways. Um, I mentioned um, a few weeks back that second church actually used to have 1,200 members as a part of the church in the 1940s and '50s, 1200 members. It's easy to like kind of look at even our building and go what I mean our church was like the main church for the neighborhood and it's sort of easy to go, man, the glory days what can we accomplish um, it seems maybe as though we've kind of regressed, right? And if you just look at the church generally, it's just true that there are fewer people in churches. That's, that's true. At least in the West, that's largely true. Um, maybe some of you have been to the, to the beer church over in Pittsburgh. It's a huge, glorious church that's now a brewery. And they make pretty good beer. Um, I, I have been there. Um, but here's what I want you to think. Okay, as soon as um, hopefully the Jews heard that as soon as Nehemiah heard that, he might've been able to think back of how God took people who were slaves, right? And he brought them to himself and out of slavery, he made them a great nation. And how it seems to be the case that actually that's just how God works. He works through the weak and the weary and the feeble because when, he is, when we are weak, he is strong. It seems to be actually what God tends to prefer. Um, this is Jeremiah chapter nine. It says this, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his strength, let not the rich man who boasts boast in this, that he understands, but let him boast in this, that he understands and he knows me, that I'm the Lord who practices righteousness in the earth, for these things I delight in, declares the Lord. I mean, the whole story of scripture is this way, that the Lord actually delights in the feeble. The, the ones who are weak and the ones who actually people could be making fun of. How are you going to get anything done? You? Um, of course, you can think of um, Paul writing in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. He says, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power that your faith might not rest in wisdom but in the power of God. And of course, if we even look at our Lord Jesus, you think with me about a passage like Isaiah 53 that actually describes for us Jesus as somebody who you didn't even want to look upon. So when Sambal like, what are these feeble Jews doing? God's like, yeah, this is exactly the kind of people that I use. Think about the next thing that he says. Will they restore it for themselves? And the response of Nehemiah and the Jews could have been like, no, neither will we do it because we've actually been praying all this time and we know that we're not going to do it unless God does it. And no, we're not restoring it for ourselves. We're restoring it for the Lord. That's a crazy question for them. Think with me on Zechariah chapter 8. He says this, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Zion with great jealousy and I am jealous for her with great wrath. Thus says the Lord." I've returned to Zion and I will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem and Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Again, I think of sort of dreams for our church and even again, thinking of things like pursuing this like rack P money for logos and helping the helping logos take over the education wing and helping our church have sort of more sustainable HVAC systems and things like that for for all that we do in the building. And we think, are we going to be able to do this? No, but can the Lord do it? Yes. It's just the exact same kind of thing, right? And really, it's sort of very similar. It's, I mean, no, we're not going to be able to do this, and we're not doing it for ourselves anyway. We're thinking about all this energy for the sake of the school and for the sake of the neighborhood, that the Lord might be made known in our place. The next question that he says is, will they sacrifice? Commentators have different thoughts about this. What does that mean? What does it mean, will they sacrifice? Part of what it means is, are they actually going to accomplish it? Like, are they going to build it in such a way that they're going to be able to restore the sacrificial system in Jerusalem? Remember, what was being done before Jesus came was, of course, animals were coming, and there was a picture of atonement in those animals being brought and sacrificed. But the other, a lot of people think what they're also, what he's mostly saying is, are they going to pray this wall up? And, um, and you know, that, that, that looks like foolishness to Sambal. He thinks, come on, you can't just pray something and God's going to hear you and answer you. But again, if you think of Nehemiah, he's, been, he's actually like, I've been praying in every chapter of my book so far. Everything is, is about bringing it to the Lord and saying, Lord, here, you do it. And so again, for the Jews and for Nehemiah and for us, we might hear this and we might go, that's exactly what we're going to do. <laughs> we're going to pray and we're going to say, Lord, hear Lord answer. The next question is, will they finish it, uh, will they finish up in a day? Now, this is just simply, uh, this is a little bit ridiculous because Sanballat and Tobiah and all these other people that are seeing the wall, they know that you don't rebuild a wall in a day. Okay, you might remember that last week I mentioned that it's two and a half miles uh, long and its width uh, goes from eight feet to about 20 feet, right? There's no way you're going to build a wall like that in a day. But he's simply mocking them. He's saying, you're not ever going to accomplish this. And he's trying to get inside their head and say, this is a foolish, foolish project, and you're never going to get it done. Now, I want you to think again, just very practically, even about a place like Harrisburg. How many of you heard about our debt being paid off? Okay, September 9th, you know that, that Harrisburg for 25 years had about $125 million of debt? It just was paid off. I mean, so many people are like, Harrisburg? And the place is, I mean, it's full of debt. And now actually it's, it's getting to a much healthier place fiscally. Right? I mean, there's these things that you can say, this is too big. This is never going to be accomplished. It can't be accomplished in a day. It can't be accomplished in 25 years. And then something happens. And, 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 the, and sort of the thing that you would think would never happen actually happens. The next question says this: Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish, and burned ones at that? Now, what what, what he's saying is, hey, look, th- what you're trying to do is ridiculous, um, but even with even the things that you're working with seems to have no value. You're working with with just stones that have been burned down over the years, stones that have fallen over, and I think this is again something that for Christians, you go, again, this is actually how God tends to work. He takes the things that, things pe- that people want to throw out um, and he reclaims them, right? He takes the discarded things and he says, you know what, that's going to work for me. And actually my glory is going to be made more manifest because it's the sort of thing that you want to toss out. Um, he takes trash and he makes it into something that he treasures and he delights in. And that's just the way that the gospel works. It's not because of the value of the thing itself but because the Lord loves it that it becomes more valuable and more lovely and so we see the gospel even in this mocking think about this do you know that the most what does anybody know this actually let me ask this question what's the most uh most quoted passage from the Old Testament in the New Testament anybody okay it's this it's Psalm 118 it says the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone it says, This is the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. The thing that is rejected has become the cornerstone, and it's the Lord's doing, and we marvel at it. I mean, this is the most often quoted passage in the New Testament, and of course, it's referring to our Lord Jesus, the one who was rejected, despised, you know, not, not nice to look at again, like Isaiah 53 says. And it's the rejected one that the Lord takes pleasure in and everyone marvels at god uses broken things that's just how he works and that's how this how, what we see here in this passage all right um one final thing maybe you caught this that so sanballat says all this stuff and there's two main people that are kind of leading the charge against nehemiah and the work it's sanballat and then it's tobiah the ammonite and you get the sense that Tobiah's like sanballat's like this big guy and Tobiah's like this he's like yeah that's right let's have it let's give it to him and so literally this is what he says yes what are they building if a fox goes up on it he will break it down break down their stone wall okay it's not a question like the previous ones all he's doing is mocking but do you remember how huge this project is and how big this wall is i mean you're almost supposed to listen to this and go this is so silly a fox is not going to break down a wall that is 8 feet wide to 20 feet wide. How many foxes would it take to break down a wall that big? 13. 13? <laughs> 4,000. Four, 4, okay, I think 4,000 is a pretty good guess. What do you think? 670. 670. That's a lot, too. A million. A million could, probably could do it. What do you think? Infinity. Uh, I don't even know how. I don't know that number. It's really big, though, isn't it? Fifteen thousand—that's a good number too, Lydia. Like 102 million? Oh, one hundred two million—that might do it. <laughs> one what do you think, J- What do you think, Henry? 69. sixty-nine. I don't know if sixty-nine would do it. Here's the thing, okay? This is just simply mocking, I and mean, there's no way that one fox is going to break down a big stone wall like this. Um, but we do know that the old adage that says sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me is not true. And stones. We actually know that mocking and jeering can hurt you immensely. that it can have a huge effect on you. Um, what I'm saying here is that in this passage, what we first see is opposition to the work of God and to the rebuilding of his city, Jerusalem, uh, is first met with words. And some of these words cut hard. But some of them, when you start to look at them, you go, yeah, that's actually exactly the kind of thing that God always works with. He always works with those kinds of things. Um, but here, what we, what we also see is it doesn't, the opposition doesn't just come from words. It also comes from some actions. Verse 7, it says this. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward, and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry, and they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. Okay, here's my point, right? Is that At least in this passage, what we're not being shown is that opposition is just coming from words. What it actually turns into is action, right? Sanballat and Tobiah then go, hey, let's get all of these other groups of people. sort of the people that are surrounding Jerusalem, they say, let's all make sure that this doesn't happen. There's an action that's taking place—a a gathering together of others and saying, "Hey, let's work against this." And actually, what they say is, "Let's go fight and let's cause confusion so that this work does not happen." They take up arms; it seems they're getting ready to go to battle against the people that are restoring Jerusalem. What I'm suggesting to you, at least in this passage, is that these—these these are the things that we see is that opposition to the work of God takes place in these two different forms of words and action. But one of the really great things about this passage is that as much opposition as we see, we see even more resolve. Right? I mean, you think about this back. Okay, Nehemiah had this position, right? He was second in command um, before Artaxerxes, the king of Persia. You might remember that I mentioned that that the cupbearer would have worn the signet ring of the king. Because he was so trusted. He would, tra- he would taste the wine before Artaxerxes would taste it. He was the most trusted person in the kingdom. And Nehemiah gave up that sort of trusted role to go and to rebuild a ruined city. But what he did before that is he sought the Lord. And he sought the Lord for four months before he acted. And then when he got to Jerusalem, he actually stopped and he, and he sat, it says, for three days before he went out and surveyed. And I imagine in that setting, he began to pray again. And there's such a, a process that the, that he's saying the Lord has called me to do this. And despite what opposition may come, this is going to get done. Maybe you remember that in chapter two, we saw lots of reasons why Nehemiah shouldn't do it. Um, and yet at each one of those, God provided for him the resources to do what he was going to do. Um and here, it's not just that he's saying we shouldn't do it, but he's seeing all this opposition and he's becoming more and more resolved that this is the work that God has called him to. Um, so this is verse, five, verse four. He prays this. He says, oh, hear, O oh our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. I'm reading this kind of fast, but was anybody shocked by that prayer? He's not just saying, hey, God, would you please make it so that we can get this job done? But he's actually saying, Lord, do away with this group of people, right? He says, make them captives and and, and plunder their goods. Don't cover their guilt. Uh, let not their sin be blotted out in your sight. And maybe what you're wondering is, hey, whatever happened to love your enemies as yourselves? Can Christians pray this kind of prayer? Right? That's a good question. Can, can Christians pray this kind of prayer? Well, I will say this. You will have a hard time making an argument from both the New Test- or Old Testament or the New Testament if you were to say, no, we cannot say that kind of prayer. That this is Christian prayer Um, But specifically, what I want you to hear is what what Nehemiah is doing first is he is saying, Lord, this is all in your hands. He's saying, I am not going to take vengeance on this wrongdoing. He does not repay. And if you think of Romans chapter 12, uh, verse 19, it says this, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, pay, says the Lord. So Nehemiah is actually doing exactly what you all should do. At the very beginning, he says, Lord, act. Here's these people that are causing confusion and trying to fight against us. Lord, bring them to nothing. I'm going to lay it in your hands. As much as Christians, let me say this. As much as Christians are called individually to turn the other cheek and, and to not just sort of take up arms as a, as a personal offense, we're also called to defend our neighbor to care for our brothers and sisters to come to their defense. And so there's this other tricky thing that's going on in this passage where Nehemiah is not just saying, Lord, um, do away with my individual enemy, but he's thinking collectively. Okay. So, so my point though, first is that, uh, Nehemiah is resolved in this work. And because he's resolved in this work, he first says, Lord, it's in your hands, please do something. This is going to be dependent on you. Um, but this, this thing actually comes up again. Listen to this. This is verse nine. So verse nine says this, and we prayed, so now it's a collective prayer, to our God and set a guard as a protection against them by day and by night. So here's what happens. They leave these actions, these, this opposition of words and actions in the hands of the Lord first, but then they also say, hey, we're gonna set up a guard. We're going to think strategically about how we lay this in the Lord and pray, and also how do we act? Um, How do we take action? And so, in then in verse 16 and 17, it says this, from that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. Did anyone think, like, this is a wild, like, construction thing? I mean, they're literally, they have coats of mail, they have spears, they have swords, and they have trowels while they're building. It's a pretty interesting sort of scene. Maybe they need to scrape down some honey. Scrape down some what? Honey. Some honey from a tree? I don't know. <laughs> uh, it says, and the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah and were building on the wall. Verse 21 says this, so we labored at the work and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. And I also said to the people at that time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem that they may be a guard for us by, day, by night and may labor by day. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept the weapon at his right hand. I want you to think about this again just with regards to our own building and sort of what we're trying to think through in terms of where do we go with this space that God has given us that needs so much work? The first thing we have to do is say, Lord, it, this is not going to ever get done unless you bless it, unless you make it happen. But the fact of the matter is that this is most of our lives, right? We lay our desires before the Lord and we say, Lord, if it's not your will, you know, take it away. Um, you know, l- let your will be done. But then we also say, you know what, I need to go get that degree so I can get that job. Oh, you know what, I need to make that phone call for this thing to happen. Oh, I need to actually apply and write write a good application. What what we find in the Bible is actually this consistent kind of thing is leave it to the Lord and take the actions that you need to take. Um, Leave it up to God, but don't sort of leave it alone. This is is a wise way of living in the world, and this is a wisdom that Nehemiah is placing uh, before this people. Okay. Let me, um, there, there's so much I can say about this chapter, but that's really what I want to say here, is that there's this opposition and there's this resolve. And in this context of this opposition and in and and this uh, resolve, what you see is this laying before the Lord and taking up action. Um, probably, let me, let me wrap this back around a little, for a moment to Martin Luther King Jr. Many of you know that, uh, that, he, that he was killed, he was assassinated, the day after, actually, uh, he was meeting with the, the sanitation workers there in Memphis, right? And he was actually speaking to the, to the Southern Christian Workers Union there. And so he was taking action. He was laying it before the Lord, but he was saying, I need to do something about the injustices that are taking place. Um, maybe, you re- maybe you'll remember this. Has, has anyone, I know I've quoted this, but it's been quite a few years. Has anyone heard his uh, sermon, The Drum Major? No? Okay, he gave that actually in February of 1968. You know, he was killed in April of 1968. Um, But in that sermon, he said this. He was talking about his own death. It's almost as though he could see what was going to happen because he'd been imprisoned already 29 times. And he says this in that speech. He says, I'd like somebody to mention that day, the day of his funeral, that Martin Luther King Jr. tried to give his life serving others. he speaks about Jesus and and how Jesus gave his life for serving others. But he says, I want want them to remember that I gave my life serving others. And I think this is what Nehemiah is doing. He's laying all this before the Lord, and he's saying, Lord, none of this is going to happen unless you actually are in it and you're making it happen, but I am giving my life to this work. I'm devoting myself. I'm thinking creatively about how do I defend my people? How do I organize my people so something actually gets done? And this is sort of the lesson that we see here. This, this absolute devotion and giving over, but this work that's to be done. Uh, again, let me, let me end with this. Think about our Lord Jesus. Think about how he was mocked, how people used words of opposition toward, to him. Think about how he, actions were used against him, the plotting that took place, right? The, the buying over Judas with 30 pieces of silver. Or think about the mocking that took place with the crown of thorns, and the robe, and the sign on the cross, the king of the Jews. Jesus knew all of this exact kind of opposition, and he laid it before the Lord. He said, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. But then he continued to act, right? And he continued to be faithful, and it was even in that that you thought, if, if you were a Jew at the time, right, if you were one of his disciples, you deserted him, and you thought, there's nothing good that's going to come out of this. Is, are, is he going to be raised in a day would have been the mocking, right? Um, or the same kind of mocking that you see in, in Sandballot, but you know what? This is exactly what the Lord always does. He He does this in Christ. He goes to death, the place where we say, "Oh, this is just stones that have been burned down and they're good for nothing." You know, is a fox gonna just kind of roll on this and it's gonna tumble down? And we go, nothing good is gonna come out of a Roman cross. And yet, that's where we find our redemption. We see the glory of of God through the cross and through the resurrection. And part of that is what we're seeing even in Nehemiah. And I think this is actually what we see in ourselves too, collectively and individually, that God actually loves to work in this kind of way. All right, that's what I have for you from Nehemiah chapter four this this morning. Uh, Let me pray. Lord, thank you for this book, Nehemiah. Uh, Lord, thank you for rain uh, and for tarps Um, Thank you for the gift of your word. Lord, I thank you that it seems to be the consistent story of scripture, that in the midst of opposition, in the midst of uh, looking upon what you're doing and thinking what good can come of this, you bring glorious things. You bring the resurrection out of the cross. You bring new life out of death. Lord, you take the ruined things and the rubble and the things that people want to discard and you make them lovely. We pray, Lord, that you do that in us individually and us as a community. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayers in these things. And show yourself to be the one who does this in our midst, we pray. Amen.
0: Thank you for listening to Second City Sermons podcast. We hope this sermon has encouraged you to worship God and to celebrate the gospel of Jesus. Please consider subscribing to this podcast and joining us in person each Sunday at 10 a.m. You can find us online at secondcitychurch.org and on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Thanks again for listening. God bless.